This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with Terry and Becca. Happy Tax Day. Happy Tax Day. Woohoo! Says nobody. Hey, uh, we paid our taxes. We like them so much we paid them twice. Oof. Yeah. I paid mine a couple months ago, but not twice. But luckily, they the government moves relatively quickly. So within the next six months, we'll get our half of our money back. Yeah. Good times. <laughs> Good times. And, and, and because the... Uh, the staffing has been uh, stripped, and because funding has been stripped, there's really a less chance for you to be audited. So, yeah. yay! Yeah. Well, and they probably wouldn't audit the guy that paid twice. That's an overachiever. That's a that's an over twice as patriotic it, as the rest of us. It, exactly. They're only going after the whales. Yeah, like the big, the big, orcas. the big monies, yeah. because they have to uh, be efficient with the staffing they have now. So little that's guys, right. eh, they don't you don't want to go get a lot just, of little money. You want to get one big. Just don't do anything obvious, and you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for the tax advice. Just here to help. Happy tax day to everybody. So uh, today's it. Get her done, or get an extension, whichever. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that either. Hey, uh, boy, oh boy, the investigation into President Trump's lawyer, uh, Cohen, has now, boy, brought to light another one of Cohen's clients who did not want his name out there. he had three this year, apparently. Apparently he had three. He may only have about 12. The president, a GOP, and then a GOP money raiser uh, Mm -hmm. who had to have a payoff for various reasons. Yeah. And then Mr. Sean Hannity from Radio Fame. Which, on TV. And it brought up some uh, questions because the other two clients, Cohen's known for payoffs, for making things go away. Yeah. So what did he do for Sean Hannity? Hannity made a statement that he's never paid off a third party. This has never been That's what he said after. But at first everyone's like, what? 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 but the interesting thing is Hannity was very against the uh, the uh, yeah. what the Justice Department and the the, what, the Southern District of New York U.S. Attorney's Office Extending going in the, and searching the office of Cohen. He's like, this yeah. is you can't do this. He was just really kind of shaking his fists and never went, really went on explained and on. that didn't at all that he was it. in any way involved with Cohen. Last night, Alan Dershowitz. Now he's a law professor. He's a Harvard professor of law. Yeah, he, he's, he's he's the guy. A lot people look at him as a legal expert, yeah. and they bring him on. He was on Sean Hannity's show last night as a legal expert. Yeah. Hannity asks him, "Should the Russia investigation just be disbanded at this point? It's really flawed. All these different things." And then Dershowitz goes, "Okay, well, first off, Han- Sean, you should have disclosed that you <laughs> did he, had did this he relationship that? with Cohen. Wow, so that's good. completely off topic. He just went after yeah. him, and then Sean was like, "Well, hey, I only had a. Uh, it was just you know a limited relationship. I, I hold on. Your name came up in court. It was some real estate situations. It was yeah. you know those though he yeah. and and Dershowitz is like I understand." But seeing as you're on TV talking about this, you should have disclosed that you have a relationship with the guy everyone's talking yeah. about. Yeah. And when his office was raided, you should have probably said, just so, so everybody knows, he's a really, really good friend of mine, has been for years, and I like to ask legal questions to him. Right. And he, and he may perceive me as a client. And if it was a legal 
If it was just real estate, then say that. Yeah, yeah. Not a big deal. But when you just kind of keep quiet and let it float under the radar until it's mentioned in court, it looks really bad. You know, it would be horrible to be, you know, Sean Hannity if it was as as innocent as he says it is. And then the next thing you know, you're being brought up Uh in the the craziest case. Yeah. You don't want to be involved in that case. Uh, All right. Well, let's get to the rest of the headlines. Anything else going on? Uh, along that same route there, shortly after it was revealed Monday that President Trump's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, counts Sean Hannity as a client, the Fox News host and colleague Juan Williams asked why his connection was never disclosed on his show. Why, when Sean was on air strongly an advocate of President Trump, was he not saying, hey, I've got a relationship with it, with the lawyer, Williams said on the TV show The Five. He goes, I think that's a question. On Twitter, Hannity and Cohen have never, uh, Hannity said they, they have, his, Cohen has never represented me in any matter. I've never retained him, received any invoice, or paid any legal fees. Hannity added that the pair did have a brief discussion about legal questions, and he assumed those conversations were confidential. But to be absolutely clear, they've never involved any matter between me and a third party. Which so, would be, you know, there's no payoffs. So he felt like he didn't need to say that because... They're not close. I guess he felt like there was no relationship, but Cohen felt it was important enough not to disclose. And we're going to have my lawyer submit letters to the judge. Hey, let's not do this. This person's a public figure. Let's, you know. But but Sean did say, but but I did. This is something that was interesting. He said, but I did assume that I had client attorney privilege of secrecy of what was said. He said his privacy was violated yesterday in court. Except the problem is if you're not a client, you can't have client attorney privilege. Or if the guy you're dealing with isn't actually a lawyer. I mean, he may have a degree, but he's not doing lawyer work. Right. He's fixing problems. He's a fixer. Yeah. So, I mean, it's... He's like a handyman. You can't call attorney-client privilege when you're not being an attorney. Right. I guess. Interesting stuff. Just so whatever. So President Trump is reportedly looking to avoid levying new economic sanctions on Russia in response to a suspected chemical attack by Syria this month. The U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, announced Sunday the sanctions would be forthcoming to send a strong message denouncing Russia's backing of the Syrian government. She said that on national television. But the Washington Post reported Monday that Trump was upset that the sanctions were already in motion because he was, quote, not yet comfortable in executing them. The so she's she's putting her neck out on the line here, saying, "Yeah, we're coming down tough on Russia." Right, and he says, "Whoa!" and he backed it down. And we launched eighty-eight of one hundred and five missiles at Syria over this issue. It was that serious that we did military yeah. action. But we're not sure if we want to do sanctions. Oh, and, uh, wow. The president reportedly wants to be wants to instead wait to see if Russia further provokes a response from the U.S. before deciding on sanctions. So. Wait for them to do something else? Yeah, I guess. If they're involved, they're involved, I guess. I don't know. The president reportedly had not approved the sanctions when Haley announced them. on Mon- And on Monday, the White House publicly backpedaled Haley's statement. Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders said the administration is merely considering additional sanctions and that a decision will be made in the future. Why are they so afraid of Russia? It's another situation where Putin comes up. And then eh, we're not going to do something. We'll kind of soft pedal something. Don't and, rock and it. And you may have legit reasons. It just seems like every time those two subjects come up, Trump, Putin, yeah. we're going to be kind of soft instead of going after him for doing something that you assume they did. That was part of the missile launch. So, oh, well. Right. John McCain. 
stable condition after undergoing surgery on Sunday to treat an intestinal infection, his office said. McCain, who was diagnosed with brain cancer last summer, has not returned to Capitol Hill since December. He has remained at home in Arizona while undergoing cancer treatment. He has remained engaged on his work as chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee and has enjoyed frequent visits from family, friends, staff, and Senate colleagues. He's got to be one of the toughest men around. He has a brain tumor, right? right? And just had to go through surgery and is in stable condition. Right. So they said the uh, issue was they found the tumor last year while they're going after a blood clot that had formed during surgery and found the tumor and the intestinal thing is yet another issue that's come yeah. up. So, yeah. Well, hang on. He's continuing on. He's back. This uh, I found yesterday. I thought it might have been an interesting uh, development when it comes to the important issue of pizza delivery. Yes. I mean, I think all of us at some point or another – this Need is a pizza. critical. No, for sure. So Domino's, which has been bringing pizzas to doorsteps for more than half a century, says the PR release, will now deliver to the great outdoors. The pizza chain said Monday that its drivers can meet customers at U.S. beaches, parks, and landmarks to hand over pizza, cheesy bread, or other food on its menu. Wow. The locations show up in the company's app or website at Domino, uh, called Domino's Hotspots. Franchises choose the hot spots, including local dog parks and airports. Drivers will pull up to the curb to meet the customer, Domino said, and people can tell the app uh, what they're wearing so it's easier to spot them. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so you could be in any state park. You could have a pizza delivered to Lincoln Memorial. Uh, the public library near my home, you can have a pizza delivered there. Excellent. Uh, That's there's really a park. Smart. I'm just looking here on on the Domino's Pizza app. Yeah, yeah. To see, you know, locally right yeah. around us. I think that's neat. How you that. have all of the pizza apps. That's I, really great. I actually, am, I think I'm logged in on every one of the pizza main major pizza websites because you wow. get deals wow. and stuff. So yeah, do you? BYU Broadcasting. Yeah. Is you can just, but I mean, you know, it's a building. Yeah. They're, they're talking more like you're on the beach and not trying to drop any hints, but if anyone is listening, yeah, you can so now send pizzas send to pizza BYU to Broadcasting. The Matt Townsend Show breakfast pizza. Care of Matt Townsend? He'll cover it. Don't worry okay. about it. We're wearing headphones. Um, you can. Oh, yeah. There's the basketball stadium next door, both north and south entrances. Oh wow! So if you're at the game, you can order a pizza outside instead of maybe concessions. Not saying that. Not saying you that you do that because that wouldn't be right. But if you look at the map here. Those are all the locations around us. There's wow. probably like 15, 20 maybe. Well, I think that's great. So you can go camping with your family but still have the pizza delivered to the ranger station. Right. That's wonderful. Or, now you don't have to. The first thing I pictured when you said that they delivered to the great outdoors was like the Amazon drone thing that's coming oh, yeah, out. Yeah. Just picture drones like delivering a pizza oh, to a wow. tent in the middle of a that cliff. Could, that could be the extent of this when it, when it rolls all the way out. Boy, that'll you be good. You see yourself on a family trip to Yellowstone National Park. You're at Old Faithful. Have a pizza delivered. Have a pizza right Why there. Not? That's Why what not? I call living off the land. Well, do you remember when we didn't have pizza at all those places? Instead, you were just looking at the Lincoln Memorial. Now, now you got to have your pizza delivered there. Wow. What's happening to this world? Well, I know what's happening. It's our health. It's going down uh, It's going down the tube. Uh, up next, we're going to be talking about why the south of the United States is the least healthy region in the United States. Interesting research about uh, why, why they're struggling down there so much. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live longer and get your pizza delivered anywhere in the world.
Welcome back, folks. What does Massachusetts, Hawaii, Vermont, Utah, and Connecticut all have in common? Well, in 2017, they were all rated the healthiest states in the union. On the other hand, West Virginia, Alabama, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Mississippi are all in the South and are at the bottom of the list of healthiest states in the Union. Why is this the case? Well, here to answer the question, that question is uh, Dr. Jay Maddock. He's the dean of the School of Public Health at Texas A&M University. He previously served as the director of the University of Hawaii Public Health Program for eight years. Uh, Dr. Jay Maddock, thank you so much for being with us today. Good morning, Matt. Thank you. You know, this really, it's always more complicated than it seems. I, whenever I think of the South, I think they just have great food. That's why they're all, why they're less healthy states. But you've, you've been able to identify there's a variety of reasons that lead to their lower health status. Talk to us about what are the, some of the reasons about why the Southern states are, are so unhealthy. Sure. You know, I think it's, it's very interesting as we look uh, across the country because uh, county to county, we see big differences in health, and it's pretty dramatic. It's actually about a um, 20-year difference in lifespan from the shortest uh, lifespan in the county to the longest. And wow. so as we try to figure out, you know, you know what's causing that, um, we see a lot of differences in um, in health behaviors. And so, you know, we look and say, what kills Americans? It tends to be smoking, physical inactivity, and poor diet. You know, about two-thirds of premature deaths are related to those. And um, certainly the smoking rate is higher throughout the South, with uh, West Virginia and Kentucky being two of the highest. Um, we also see higher rates of obesity and diabetes uh, in these states. And, and so part of it is trying to figure out what, why. Why would we see higher obesity and diabetes and smoking rates in, in those states? Mm. And it's, um, it's, it's, that is amazing, though. 20 years difference. Some counties in the South versus count, some of those other states we, we listed, a 20-year difference in life expectancy. I mean, honestly, this is, this is, this is a big deal. We've got to figure this out. It's incredible. And, you know, living in, in Hawaii um, and in Massachusetts growing up, um, you know, it, it, coming to Texas and saying, oh, there's, you know, there's a five or six year lifespan between Texas and Hawaii. Um, you know, what, what could be causing that? And it's, you know, something that was what really got me into this, this research as I had moved from Hawaii to Texas about three years ago. Yeah. Talk about, I mean, so some of this has got to be access to care, right? It's got to be, are, are these states paying less for health care and, and, and making it less accessible? What's going on as far as just the institutions of health care there? Yeah, you know, there's major shortages in primary care physicians in the South. If you look at kind of a, a map of the U.S. and say, where are primary health care physicians? They, they tend to be really, really clustered in um, the northeastern part of the United States. And so um, places like Massachusetts, you'll see more than 200 um, primary care physicians per 100,000 people. And in places like Mississippi, there's less than 100, um, you know, so it's about half. And so you got longer waiting times. And then in in a lot of these states, you're dealing with rural health, right? And so folks that live uh, a long way away from a city, and so there might be an hour or more travel just to see a physician. We have counties here in Texas where there's not one physician living in the entire county. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. It is. And I guess is that... um, they they just are choosing not to live there or and they're not being i guess incentivized or drawn to live there 
Yeah, you know, I think you look at you look at salaries for physicians, and they tend to be very um, different across the nation. And so, when somebody comes to say Texas, and they can work in Houston in the Texas Medical Center, or they can work in a very small community in West Texas, the amount of, of income and lifestyle is going to be so different um, depending on those two choices. Now, it's an interesting thing because it doesn't, I mean, money is one thing, but Hawaii, for example, is rated as one of the healthiest in the nation. Um, but I'm not, are they, are they a rich state? It seems like they've got, they've got their own issues of, uh, you know, accessibility and getting people off the, you know, out of, out of their, where they live and getting them to a healthcare facility. Yeah, you know, it's, I chaired the Board of Health in the state of Hawaii, and especially on the neighbor islands, uh, access to care was, was uh, quite dramatic. We had to actually airlift folks in, um, you know, that had medical emergencies to Oahu yeah. uh, for care. But what you saw in Hawaii was actually much more on the primary prevention side. And so, um, you know, a state that really uh, took smoking seriously. And so back in 2006, um, smoking was banned in all indoor areas in um businesses and workplaces in, in Hawaii. And then just uh, two years ago, they increased the smoking age to 21. And so a state that's really said, you know, we're not going to pay um, all the costs related to smoking. We're going to be very progressive on the um, the policy angle. Hmm. Now, so being on these public health boards, d- d- what percentage of, of impact do they really have? Are they a big player in the health of their communities or are they just more, you know, appointed positions from some governor? Yeah, you know, the, the public health boards have kind of, it depends on mixed uh, kind of effects and, and how um, how open you have a relationship with the legislature. Actually, where we saw a lot more effectiveness was in our coalition work. So the group we had called the Coalition for Tobacco-Free Hawaii, which was a voluntary group, um, but made up of people like the American Cancer Society, American Heart, the university, um, really came together as a voice for, um, you know, smart public health policies. And in Hawaii, we made a lot of inroads um, with that in terms of really influencing and educating uh, elected officials. Hmm. It's uh, it's it is interesting to to look at also uh, when we talk about the South. It seems like North Carolina they they have some of the best medical facilities in the country uh, with Duke and North Carolina. And and so um, is this about having having great you know educational opportunities in the healthcare field? Does that help? Because they don't seem to be the states listed in the South with the problem. Yeah, you know, and North Carolina is an interesting one because it really is kind of uh, on the line between the South and um, the Mid Atlantic. Yeah. So certainly they have the great health care. Um, there are major health disparities between um, you know parts of the East and then parts of Appalachia, which is in the western part of the state, where you see um, you know the opioid epidemic being really bad. Um, and so North Carolina kind of has a mix depending on what part of the state that you're in. Hmm. What what should we do about this, Jay? I mean, we hear uh, it's almost every year on the show we'll we'll do another they'll do a someone will do a census about the healthiest states and the southern those those five or so that are always listed in the south they don't seem to be changing much um, and so is there anything that can be done really? Yeah, you know, I think there is. I mean, so what we did from geez, starting back in two thousand through twenty fifteen in Hawaii was we created a concentrated effort called the Healthy Hawaii Initiative, which was a partnership between the State Department of Health, the University of Hawaii, and the Department of Education. And we really said, let's take a comprehensive look at our state and what's affecting uh, health outcomes, and and the major being the tobacco use, the physical activity, and the nutrition, 
and let's look at all the policies and environments and then also public education that we can work on. And so Hawaii, when I got there, was ranked about ninth. And then up until this past year, when Massachusetts passed us for five years in a row, Hawaii was the healthiest state in the nation. So I think there, there are ways, hmm. but it takes kind of a concentrated effort um, within the states to do it. Is it um, Do you normally see that it's the people that push it to happen, or is it the government that pushes it down? You know, it happens both ways. And so uh, certainly when the, when the people get together and work on it, that, that can be the strongest. But we saw um, places, you know, a lot of, and that's one of the reasons these rankings are actually fairly important. So they did city, healthy city rankings. And a few years back, uh, Philadelphia was rated as the least healthy city in America. Hmm. And the mayor got upset. And so he said, we're not going to do this anymore. And so that really made him uh, concentrate and focus on it. And Philadelphia is in the bottom of no one's rankings anymore. So they really made a, you know, a nice difference in that city. And it, But it took the leadership um, to really make it happen. Boy, that's great. Uh, again, we're speaking with Dr. Jay Maddock. He is the dean of the School of Public Health at Texas A&M University. He has served as the director of University of Hawaii's public health program for eight years and is internationally recognized for his research in social ecological approaches to increasing physical activity. Uh, Jay, when I look at it too, um, I mean, it's it's one thing to, it's one thing, I guess, to like educate everybody on this, but you also have to make things accessible. You've got to have places for people to walk, activities for people to do. I mean, it seems like it gets fairly expensive. You know, it doesn't have to be expensive. And so um, one of the big policies that we worked on in Hawaii was called Complete Streets. And what Complete Streets is, is just anytime you build a new road or you renovate a road, you consider all um, modes of users. So you consider pedestrians, you consider cyclists, and you consider motor vehicles. And so as this is new construction, um, you know, it doesn't really cost a lot of extra money to be able to do that. And it'll take a little bit of time, but it'll happen. Um, Here at Texas A&M, we just launched a, um, a bike share program, which will have 4,000 mm. uh, dockless bikes in the, in the fall. And um, the company, uh, OFO, is actually uh, paying for it. There's a $35 a semester subscription fee for students, and then it's covered. And so these public-private partnerships are also a great way to be able to do these things without um, much of a cost to the, the government of the state. That's great. So they pay $35 a year or a month? A semester. A semester. So 70 a year. And yeah. have access. That's great. As much as you want in the 4,000, you can find one anywhere. And yeah. then we tell people, you know, you don't need to buy a bike because they're, they're much cheaper this way. You don't need to worry about maintenance. You don't need to worry about somebody stealing it. Overall, are we getting healthier? Is this – I mean, we hear these numbers and um, it's scary that one state could have a 20-year life expectancy longer than another. Is, but overall, are we doing better? That's a great question. Um, yes and no. And so um, we have been doing better and better um, for quite a long time. We've seen rates of cancer come down. We've seen rates of heart disease come down. Um, what's happening now is, you know, obesity has been rising. And so it looks like this generation will have um, shorter lifespans than the one before it. And then what's even more concerning is the opioid epidemic. Um, yeah. You know, we've seen this incredible increase in, in opioid overdose deaths. And we're seeing, um, especially among white women um, and in the South, a reduction in life expectancy. Wow. And how do we how do we do compared to other countries? Where are we? I mean, it seems like this is where we should be leading, but I'm sure we're not. 
We're not. You know, we, we pay more for health care um, than any other country in the world. And we finish somewhere in the 20s in terms of, of life expectancy and, and care. And so you know, what I always tell people is that we, we don't invest enough in public health. We invest a lot in care. But, you know, if we can prevent people from getting sick, it's cheaper and we get a better result from it. Did, did you see a difference when you know, Obamacare was being instituted, where it was more money being paid to, you know, public health and public health care at yes, that time? Yes, been a reduction in the, in the public health fund. Um, and, and so, you know, part of looking at this, and that's, Obamacare, I think, did a lot of good things, but also came short in a lot of areas. And a lot of it was having that comprehensive look at, um, you know, at prevention across the nation. It looked a lot of getting people health insurance, which is extremely important, but it wasn't the entire picture. Hmm. What uh, So what advice would you give us, just anybody out there listening, wherever they are, you, you kept bringing up tobacco and physical health. What else? What else should we make sure that we are at least, you know, advocating for, pushing for in our communities to make sure we have healthier, healthier communities? You know, I think a lot of it is is um, also looking at the environment that we live in, um, and so we see higher rates of uh, air pollution uh, in a lot of the southern states. We tend to be, you know, high industrial areas here in Texas. Obviously, oil and gas is a huge industry, so also Louisiana, and so making sure we also have uh, clean environments. We saw a lot after Harvey um, coming in in terms of Superfund sites flooding and and uh, coming into communities. So that's another area that certainly we can make a difference. South tends to be disproportionately affected by heavy industry. That's interesting. Man, I mean, and, and then um, I, I guess, too, at some point, make make the city more walkable. So a lot of these cities in the South, I read in your article, just aren't walkable. They're, they're not, they don't, they're not conducive to healthy living. Yes, yeah. And so, you know, it was, it was interesting. I was actually in um, Winston-Salem uh, over the weekend, which was rated uh, second from last in walkability. And it's a community that's really taking it seriously. And so they're actually closing one of the major highways into town for two years uh, to build a greenway, and they're building uh, walkable trails all across um, the city. So, you know, these cities can make a change, and I think when they get it, when leadership gets it, um, it really can make a difference. Greenville, South Carolina is another example of a city that's built this incredible trail um, called the Swamp Rabbit Trail, and they're seeing you know, differences. They're seeing conferences and business and everybody coming to the city because they've made it walkable. So I think there's a business case for a lot of these things, too. No, I do, too. And uh, we appreciate it, Jay. I think this is just great insight for all of us to know that there is stuff we can do, and the sooner the better – um, and we, we probably need to make sure we're pushing it from the bottom up as well as the top down. Jay Maddock is his name. Dr. Jay Maddock, again, is the dean of the School of Public Health at Texas A&M University, uh, walking us through why it is that some parts of the South are the least healthiest regions in the United States. Interesting, interesting insight. And by the way, it's not one type of, uh, you know, it's not one ethnicity. It's not one location. It's There's multiple causes, multiple effects, multiple issues going on. It's complex. But the idea that one part of this country would have 20 years less uh, to live because of where you were born and where you were raised, that's crazy, right? We'll continue the journey. Do what we can to uh, help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. 
Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends. You know, it's not easy. And uh, if you've ever, I mean, it's can you imagine trying to stay healthy, just do what you've got to do to stay healthy? But what about uh, living in a city where it, they make it even harder to stay healthy? And you may not even recognize that, like, uh, the, the data showed that in Massachusetts, one in, uh, there's 547 physicians for every 100,000 people. And in the South, in those five states that are struggling in the South, there's 87 physicians for every 100,000 people. It's crazy. And so at some point, it's not enough to just only tell people, you know, you just got to be disciplined. Well, you can be the disciplined one in those areas. You totally can be, by the way. Um, But uh, there are some things that, that we all need to do to be to exercise a little more discipline in our own life. So think about your life. Where do you need to pick up a little bit more discipline? Where do you need to really get your act together a little bit more? And I want you to have an idea in your head because whether it's just watching less Netflix, exercising more, um, spending more time with your family, being disciplined to put your phone away, those are all things that each and every one of us could uh, and probably should be doing, right? Um, one of the things we, we might want to do too is to um, choose to focus our firepower. One, one of the things I've found is if I keep trying to do everything and be disciplined everywhere, I mean discipline is a limited reserve. You have so much uh, energy and ability in you to do something. And the, some of the research shows that the the later in the day – the harder and harder it gets for people to actually exercise more and more discipline. It might be easier, especially if you spend an entire day having to be disciplined, not getting mad at people, not being you know angry, not having blow-ups, not eating that really good lunch. If you've been exercising discipline all day, you might know you might notice that the later it gets in the day, the harder this gets. So. Uh, instead of having five different things that every day you're trying to exercise your discipline on, what if we could just try to become more disciplined on one thing a day? Let's try to just use as much of our firepower as we can on that one thing. And sometimes if you may have noticed that like when you're using a garden hose, um, you put your thumb over the end of the hose and you kind of restrict it a little bit. And by restricting the hose, you can actually create a stronger stream and a more directed focus stream. That's that's kind of what we need to do is there's power in restricting a little bit and focusing our, our uh, discipline to be able to handle something um, and, and to be able to take it on a little bit more in a focused way. Uh, there's a great book by Greg McKeon called Essentialism, another book by Sean Acor called The um, Happiness Advantage. Both are great books that, have, that are now sharing all of the research about how to use, uh, how to create positive psychology in your life, how to be happier. Sean Acor talks about a rule called the 22nd rule in his book, The Happiness Advantage. And that rule basically uh, helps, you know, people that waste time get out of it. They call it activation energy. You know, it takes energy to get a project or an activity started. It's just that little spark that everyone needs to have. 
that you don't need to always have a ton more discipline to do it. You just need to decrease the amount of activation energy that is required to start a task, right? So if I, for example, um, if I like watching television at night and I'm trying to stop watching television, then I need to increase the energy it would take me to watch television, so an example that Sean Acor gives is, well, what you ought to do is go put your remote control upstairs in your bedroom um, so and or the batteries upstairs in the bedroom and the remote control in your office. So if you want to watch TV, you now have to get up, walk to your office, go all the way upstairs, get your batteries, and then put your batteries in and then come back down and watch TV. And because that's so much activation energy, you're probably less likely to do it. And the reverse is true. If you want to get something done and make sure you are accomplishing tasks easier, then you've got to figure out a way to get that activity started and going within 20 seconds. So if you wanted to watch more TV, right, then you'd want to have the remote right near you as close as you can, as easy as you can. You'd want to spend all the energy to get your four remotes converted into one universal remote. Bada boom, bada bing, you're done. So that is called the 20-second rule, and um, you don't necessarily need a ton more discipline to do that. You do just need to make sure that we are focused and doing and making the, the what seemingly is difficult, make it a little easier to do. Uh, another thing you could do is make sure that you have routines and rely heavily on your disciplined routines. So make traditions, make habits. If you want to make it easier to run in the morning, make sure that you have a routine of having your shoes right by your bed. Maybe even go to bed and sleep in your jogging or your running clothes that you will be running in tomorrow. And then make a routine of how you're going to get up. And once you've kind of turned it into a habit or a routine or a pattern, you don't need to think about it every day. It's going to – the pattern itself will operate on you. You can also evaluate your routines regularly and and make stuff happen. There are ways, folks, that we each and every one of us can become a lot more disciplined if that's what we're seeking after. And um, or we can sit back and just keep saying it's hard. It's really hard and keep telling the story of how hard it is to exercise discipline, how hard it is to uh, to do and be what you need to be. It's uh, again, and I'm, this isn't coming from a guy that is a seriously disciplined person, but I I do have habits, I do have patterns, I do have routines, and when I start to realize that all I need is about twenty seconds to get something going, another thing is you don't even need to focus on doing the biggest thing. You could go choose what's the smallest thing I can do today to start to move my body more and exercise more. What's the least thing I can do. And if you would just go do that least thing, you would actually probably be more inclined to do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So again, it doesn't have to be the biggest things in the world. Sometimes it just has to be anything. And that's uh, one of the fastest keys, I think, for any of us to get a little bit more disciplined. Uh, Again, the two books are um, Essentialism, by Greg McKeon and um, The Happiness Advantage by Sean Acorn. Good stuff, folks. We'll continue the journey. More fun straight ahead. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and be more disciplined.
With only one life to live, sometimes we get caught up with the idea that every moment of our life has to be the best moment. Licensed clinical social worker Diane Barth suggests that striving to be or have or do the best could be costing you the pleasure of the good enough moments sprinkled through our every day. She joined us not long ago to talk about five ways that good enough is exactly what we need. We started that interview by asking, why are, so, why are we so into chasing the best? Well, there are a lot of reasons. I mean, we live in a very competitive society. We have this idea that to compete, you have to be the, to compete and be successful. You have to win and be the best, which is fine sometimes, but it's not always possible. And you can still enjoy, um, you know, you can enjoy things that you're doing even if you're not winning. Whatever that happens to mean, right? Is it, is it um, as you look at it, we, there, there are just as many good moments of life, and in fact, probably significantly more good moments of life, if we could just relax and see them. Oh, for sure. I mean, we've all had the experience where, um, I hope my son will forgive me, I'm going to use him as an example, <laughs> but he is a, an athlete, and he loves... Uh, he, he's a rower, and he loves rowing. He loves being on the water. He loves the uh, energy of the team. He loves everything about it. And it is very hard for him to really appreciate that he doesn't have to win. I'm sorry, I should change that. <clears throat> it used to be hard. He's gotten older, and it's much easier for him now. But you, you really don't have to win at that sport to, to have a wonderful time at it. Mm. I mean, and because that's it. You don't have to be the best. My son's trying out for a football league this year or right now. And, you know, on the field, there's going to have five teams. And one team is the very best team that will go against all the best teams in the rest of the leagues. And the other four teams are just going to be really fun. (laughs) Exactly. And, you know, wouldn't it be nice if the best team could be having fun? Right. Because the, the reality is they will not be the best always. Yeah. They will lose. They will, you know, sometimes they won't play as well. You know, I talk about this in my blog. They, sometimes they won't play as well this week as they did last week. Mm-hmm. They won't play as well, you know, today as they might tomorrow. And wouldn't it be nice if they could be enjoying what they're doing while they're not necessarily doing it the best? Is um, I can hear some in their heads saying, well, shouldn't we teach our kids to be the best instead of being good enough? I mean, but but really, when you say good enough, good enough is just you're great. I mean, you're you're there. You're in the game. Yeah, it's happening. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think that one of the problems with the whole striving for the best is that we're what we what we're talking about, although we don't necessarily say it, is that we're striving to be perfect. Right. And that's just not humanly possible. So part of the the real work, and it's work for, I think, almost anybody who lives in a competitive uh, society, which we all do these days, but the, the, the work is to be able to say that, you know, I'm trying to do as well as I can do in this moment at this time, and but I also want to really enjoy it. Yeah. Um, the the other thing is that I I love the the this quote from D W Winnicott who was a British psychoanalyst who used to say over and over again that um, being a perfect parent 
is really not the path to being a good parent. Mm-hmm. That actually being a good enough parent is much better than being the best parent because <laughs> you, by being good enough, you're letting your child have room to grow, to maybe do things you can't do, yeah. To, yeah. to have space to be things that you're not. And, and to experience that, really, right? Sorry, say to, that again. I was just going to say to experience. I mean, if all of us were the best parents, um, then it seems like we would create great kids, but they also wouldn't have experienced difficult parenting. Exactly. And I don't think we would create great kids because I think we would create, we would create intimidated kids or kids who felt they could never be good enough for us yeah. or as good as us. I don't think that would make for great kids. That's but, it's true. But the other thing that you just said I think is really important is, is that if our kids don't have moments of feeling frustrated and disappointed and dissatisfied – throughout their childhood, how are they going to deal with it when they get to be adults? Mm-hmm. They, they need those experiences to build the, the muscles and the skills for dealing with those things, which are going to happen. Yeah. In your Psychology Today um, article, you bring up a really good point about the best doctor may, mm-hmm. may not actually be the one you want. Right. Why is that? Explain that. Well, I was, just, I was actually talking about this with some friends who are both doctors the other day. And, and one of the things is that, first of all, the best doctor for me may not be the best doctor for you. Uh, right. So one thing is you have to figure out what kind of a doctor you need, what kind of a person you need. Who do you talk to most easily? Who can you ask questions to? But another thing is that, you know, we get these, these um, articles. I don't know if you all get them out there, but in New York we get these articles in New York Magazine about um, who's the best doctor in the city, who's the best doctor in the country. And the problem with those best lists is that often if you can get an appointment with one of these doctors, (laughs) you may not get more than two and a half minutes of conversation with them. Yeah. And and if you need more than that, boy, they aren't the best. Exactly. Exactly. And most of us do need more than that. Right. right. So sometimes the top surgeon in the country is not really going to give you the same attention and the same um, care that somebody who is maybe, quote, unquote, not the best, but is thoughtful and interested in you and wants to work with you with whatever the problem is that you've got, will give you. Hmm. And I mean, I look at that, too, of a doctor that's maybe done, you know, maybe they're 55, 60, they're kind of wrapping up their practice, they've they're really good at what they do, but they may not have all the latest training, or then you can go get the young buck that just got out of you know college, they just got all the latest and greatest, but they maybe just don't have the calm demeanor. It's just exactly. really so. It's so. It, so. So much of this is about if not just striving to find the best, but striving striving to find my what's good for me. Exactly. Huh. Exactly. Good. Yeah. And, and and then I guess um, then then you then you don't I guess have to stress. What does it do for me in the end? Yeah. By just having the good, it's just less stressful. Yeah. Boy. And it gives you what you're looking for most often. I mean, if you, if I think that one of the things with this striving to be the best or have the best is, is that we stop paying attention to what what we actually need, mm-hmm. and so we we move towards some sort of external value system that may not have anything to do with what what is really going on for us. Yeah. 
Yeah. Brene Brown, uh, who I really like, has a has a thing where she talks about that. Um, you know, striving for the best is is in some ways also tr- striving for perfectionism, which she talks about a lot. And and she talks about um, that, that perfectionism is not about self improvement or healthy achievement. It's about l- er, looking for approval and acceptance. Uh, right. And I think that's true a lot of times when we're, we, even if it's we're looking for the best doctor, we think we're, we're going to get someone who is going to make us, I don't know, acceptable or, or better. And I guess if, if we're always dropping like the name of our doctor, mm-hmm. then, then it is that we're kind of caught up in our comparing, I mean, trying to use that as a, as a stepping stone to look better. Yes. So I guess that's one of the signs. If really, if the best is something you have to drive so people can see it or, you know, you always have to bring up so it's there, it's part of you, then you might be caught up into this perfection thing. Exactly. That again was Diane Barth and LCSW uh, walking us through how, you know, good enough. It's Sometimes it is better than best. and But it's not easy, is it? There's something about each of our brains, our heads, that makes us think, well, I've got to be the very best. And then we even say you've got to be the very best you can be. But do you? I mean, is everything about that we have to accomplish in life have to be done the very best we can do? It just seems like we're setting ourselves up, aren't we? I don't know. I don't want to create an out for everybody but or a cop out for everybody but um, sometimes it doesn't matter what you're doing it's not about what you're doing I mean I would think if something matters deeply yeah do your best on it but if it's how you park your car you may not need to bring it in bring it out bring it in bring it out bring it in bring it out until it's the perfect parking place in your garage just park your flipping car Ah, the stress of being human. Isn't it crazy? Well, we'll continue the journey, folks. That's why we're doing the show, to give you the information, the tools you need to live longer, to love stronger, and to let things go when you need to let them go. We'll continue the journey. More straight ahead. This is The Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Happy tax day to you. Ah, you got your taxes paid or you're about to, or I think you have until the end of today. Or you just went, oh, no. I forgot. I didn't even remember that. <laughs> Darn it. Well, whatever it is, uh, today's the day. You'll want to get those uh, done, I think, by the end of today and get them in. And, uh, you know, get your check written. Or in my case, get both of them written. I, I wrote, I wrote, I paid the same taxes twice because I love America that much. Wow. I That's care. inspiring. It's totally inspiring. It, I wish, I wish it was, I wish we meant to do it. We just uh, – that's just how not organized we are. And by the way, America – an American woman wins the Boston Marathon for the first time since 1985. Yeah. How cool is that? They also said it was the slowest times in years because of the bad weather they were running in. Was it really? Yeah. Wow. Now, now, granted, the times are – you know, they're running 26 miles in yeah. superhuman effort. Just, you know, 
it would take me three days, but yeah, yeah, I could drive it really it, fast. It was raining, it was <laughs> snowing, and they're just running yeah. down the street. So yeah, but the, yeah, first time and what? How long do they say? 20? Since since eighty five, yeah. twenty two, twenty three years. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, Desiree Linden, first American woman to win since eighty uh, five. That's awesome. That's awesome. There's a lot of cool history there. Um, so Boston Marathon, if you're planning on doing that, today we'll be talking about how to be a better grandparent, huh. which is important. Being a grandparent. So I'm a little under the weather, and my granddaughter walks in my room last night and wants to have a talk. I just told her to stay away. Stand over there. <laughs> I'd love to have a talk, but I'm sick. Stay over there. I don't want to get you sick. That's in her best interest. That's in, it's totally in her best interest. And what does she want to talk about? Or she is just it private. She just wants to talk. She's okay. two and a half. She just sits down and just loves talking. What does she call you? Uh, Papa. Mm. That's so sweet. It's really cute. It's the cutest thing that happens to me. I'm going to teach my daughter to call my father old man. Oh, really? Yeah. Mr. Old Man. Mr. Old Man. That's good. That's one way to do it, isn't it? Yeah. One way to do it. So we'll get to all of that, but let's first get to the headlines, Terry. What else should we be paying attention to? Sean Hannity responded to uh, the revelations on Monday that he was represented by longtime Trump attorney Michael Cohen, claiming that Cohen has never represented him and that he never paid legal fees. Cohen, Michael Cohen has never represented me in any matter. I have never retained him, received an invoice, or paid legal fees. I have occasionally had brief discussions with him about legal questions about which I wanted his input and perspective. Uh, Hannity said uh, on Twitter, uh, Hannity hasn't yet said how specifically he used Cohen's services, but that the lawyer, other clients included his other clients, included President Trump and uh, GOP fundraiser Elliot uh, Briotti. The three clients were revealed in federal court Monday. Later Monday, Hannity said that the discussions with Cohen dealt almost exclusively about real estate, and he may have given him 10 bucks. You know, so there's like a transaction so that you can, I guess, what, retain services? Is that how that works? Okay, That's so weird. The Trump administration is reaching out to the Arab nations to have them replace the U.S. forces in Syria after the defeat of the so-called Islamic State, the Wall Street Journal reports. President Trump's new national security advisor, John Bolton, has reportedly contacted Egypt's acting intelligence chief to ask if Egypt could... uh, you know, put their forces in there, kind of contribute to the cause. Officials cited by the journal say that Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and the United Arab Emirates have also been asked to send troops in addition to billions of dollars for, Ooh, wow. res- for restoration efforts in the war-torn country. Now you have to rebuild what you've blown up in Syria. Yeah, absolutely. The news comes as Trump seeks to pull U.S. troops out of the country, a move that may have been jeopardized by, you know, airstrikes. <clears throat> <laughs> It's like we're a foot in, a foot out. We're trying to are we in or we out. out what what doing. are we doing? Two officials told the Associated Press that California has rejected President Donald Trump's initial plans to send National Guard troops to the southern border because the work is considered too closely tied to immigration enforcement. In the ongoing negotiation between the federal government and the state, California has asserted that it will not permit federal troops to fix and repair vehicles, operate remotely controlled surveillance cameras, to report suspicious activity on the border, operate radios, you know, mission support. Negotiations soured over the weekend between the two parties as federal officials saw the state's restrictions as onerous, Mm. according to the AP. So that, that... conflict is ongoing. Tammy Duckworth made history when she became the first U.S. Senator to give birth while in office, and now the Illinois Democrat wants to make history again. This time, it would change an age-old Senate rule 
according to Politico, Duckworth has submitted a resolution that would allow children under a year old to be on the Senate floor during votes, something that has been a longstanding hmm. rule. They've forbidden that. But Duckworth said that she needs the change chiefly because she wants to take her maternity leave without missing important votes. There you go. That's The cool. Senate Rules Committee reportedly may move on the measure as soon as this week. Politico says the rule change is expected to pass. That's great. So she could have her kid over there in the carrier yeah. while she's trying to vote on whatever There's issues there. There's been so much weird stuff going on on the floor of that thing. And I just want to see those guys try to say no to something and then just the tidal wave after all the totally. Me Too issues yeah. and things that are going on there. As if there weren't already babies in Congress. Right. There That's we go. Right. A bunch of babies. That was a good one. Finally, a Michigan gym patron looking for a Wi-Fi connection found one named Remote Detonator prompting an evacuation and precautionary search of the facility by a bomb-sniffing dog. Nothing was found in the search Sunday at the gym in Saginaw Township, about 85 miles northwest of Detroit. Saginaw police say that the patron uh, brought the Wi-Fi connection's name to the attention of a manager who evacuated the building and called police. The gym was closed for about three hours. The police report that there's no criminal, no crime, no threat, but they do note that some people like to have fun with their Wi-Fi names holy cow like fbi surveillance van or don't steal my wi-fi or <laughs> you know the force or whatever you want to call Unbelievable. it but people have fun with it. someone called it bomb detonator and people freaked out <clears throat> i mean if you were going to have a remote control bomb detonator yeah you probably wouldn't label it that no that would not be good <laughs> but yeah what are you gonna do what do you gotta do you gotta check into it yes that's why uh, yeah so they did isn't that amazing? Nothing. We don't think we know enough, and then we, but then we just play one little prank, and the next thing you know, you shut down. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, this could go anywhere. This could be your building, your department. This could be your school. Could be crazy stuff. Okay, we'll take a break, folks, and when we come back, we'll continue the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. Grandparents can have a big impact on the lives of their grandchildren. Likewise, grandparents can be an important source of information for their children who are trying to raise their 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 kids. So what is the role of a grandparent? Uh, joining us to talk about it is Leslie Zinberg, one of the writers of the GrandparentsLink.com blog. And she's here today to share some t- uh, tips on how to be a better grandparent. Leslie, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me. This is, uh, I'm a new, not new, two, two and a half years, a grandparent about to be a grandparent again, and um, with twins coming down the pike. But I'm wondering, I mean, it's, nobody teaches you how to be a grandparent. Nobody kind of walks you through all of uh, the important lessons that, and roles that you could play. Talk to us about um, uh, what what we need to know. What is what, and how would you kind of define and set up the role of a grandparent? Okay, first of all, congratulations. Thank you. Um, I think the role of a grandparent is to be a real friend, somebody that your grandchild trusts, and somebody that you that your grandchild loves being with. I mean, you're just. 
I think that one of the best things about being a grandparent is that you get to spend quality time with your grandchild. It's you know you get to have them for a while, and then and then if if they don't live with you, then you get to give them back. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think it's really important how you spend your time with the grandchild, and it doesn't have to be that you're buying presents. You know, we always say that that you know presents, P R E S. E-N-C-E, is much more important than buying presents. Yeah. It's being with them. And it can be just making them aware of just the whole world because they make you aware of the world. All of a sudden, as a grandparent, you forget maybe that those stars in the sky are so incredibly beautiful. And then your grandchild will point out something to you and you think, wow. So many of the things that I've taken for granted for the last whatever in my life that I looked at when, with my children, I'm now being they're, it's being pointed out again with my grandchildren. Yeah, is it is it? I mean, I, that's I think the key, isn't it? That we it's almost like we might need to make sure we we slow down and mm-hmm. and and be there for them at this time. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it is being mindful. I mean, this is the word you hear a lot now, um, but we talk about being mindful, paying attention to the moment, not being in your car with your grandchildren and having, talking on the phone, or, I mean, if you're having the radio on, maybe you're listening to to your favorite station, which has some of your favorite songs. Yeah. You know, maybe it's teaching them, you know, my kids, my grandkids know all about James Taylor and yeah. Alison Krauss and all of my favorites, Simon and Garfunkel. And they can sing those songs because we sing them together in That's the car. Great. It's, and it's exposing them to your, to your life and letting them hear about your life, too, because you also want to show them tradition and yeah. it's carrying on the traditions, whether it's um, a silly tradition that you all... We, we sing a birthday song, um, and we have a couple of couple sayings at the end, and of course now they've they've added to that, or they've you know they've learned about our you know learned about let's say religion, or they learn about um, just the traditions of a holiday that you have. So just the, that, and they become important because it's something that they have year after year after year, which gives them stability which gives them a, a, a sense of foundation which gives them a sense of belonging yeah um, and I think that's all so important then you can just you know you can just being there and reading a book reading together is so incredible yeah and it's I mean I guess that's that's the thing is um, has the role of grandparent changed a little bit? I mean, we know the technology has. We know, um, you know, just kind of our our lifestyles are changing and becoming a little bit faster paced. Does that does that change what we should be doing or could be doing as grandparents? Well, I think you have to look at it two ways. I think that you can't ignore technology. So there's, you know, you can figure out which are the best apps. And I have apps on my on on my phone, and my partner has apps on her phone, and, and our grandchildren play on the apps with us. Right. 
it, the the key is I remember raising my own kids and not using the television as a babysitter. And I think that's the same thing you have to do today. You can't use the television as a babysitter. You can't use the computer or the iPad or the iPhone. You can use it, but I mean, you, they, they, I don't think that they are a substitute uh, babysitter. Right. So if you're, if you're working on a, if you're doing a, an app together and you're playing a game together, then that's great. Or if there's, you know, um, my grandkids are, have computers at school and they do some of their homework on computers. And, you know, I think that that's fabulous. Mm-hmm. But we can't, and so we can't ignore that. And at the same time, it cannot be a substitute mom or dad or grandparent. Right. I mean, the most fun is hanging out with your grandkids and cooking together or going to the park together or taking a walk together or um, it's just, it, it makes it so easy. I mean, my, you know, I have a granddaughter who is nine, going to be 10 next week, and she has decided she wants to be a chef. Um, and so she experiments in my kitchen, which is great, except that I have glitter all over my, (laughs) (laughs) all over my, um, dining table. And we, we make all kinds of things and it's, the kitchen is horrendous mess when she's done, but we've, we have such fun. Yeah. Yeah, that's well, and you're, and it, I mean, you're, if all, if your worst thing you've got to do is clean up the glitter with her, I mean, that's great. And right. the thing, like you brought up earlier, that they're a real friend and that they really look at grandma as a real friend, someone they can trust, someone they love to spend time with, that doesn't happen if you make them come, you know, and, and only do what you like to do. Yes. What you want, what you're doing is you're building memories. Yeah. Um, and and you as a grandparent get to see the world through their eyes. So you're expanding as a grandparent. You're expanding your mind, and you're getting out and being active. I mean, going to a museum. Right. It expands the child's mind and it expands the grandparent's mind. And if you use grandparenting, I think the right way, then you, as an individual stay younger because you're learning as they're learning. Yeah. It really, I mean, it really does keep you younger and up to date. I mean, my granddaughter brought me a movie she wanted to watch that was, I guess it's a new Disney uh, character that she loves and I've never heard of it. And I'm like, oh, my heavens, I've never even heard of this. But um, but now I feel like I'm a little bit more informed, a little bit more in tune. And my uh, everybody's watching this. It's I don't know. Anyway, I think it's it is a way to to be connected and, and almost to what I didn't I guess I didn't anticipate is how much I would love my grandchild um, I love them every bit as much as as every one of my children, but um, it's just a different responsibility, and it's almost one that is just nothing but giving. You can just give, give, yes. give, give, and then, like you said, lovingly hand them back. Yes, and yes, and then and you will, and you, and as they get as they get older, they give, give, give to you. Yeah, just by a conversation. Their conversations are as they get older, are so amazing 
or what they I have a six year old grandson and um we were standing in the kitchen making something and he looked at me and my husband was out of town and he looked at me and he said, I think I need to spend the night here tonight and I said, Why? <laughs> and he said, Well, grandpa's out of town. He doesn't call him grandpa, he calls him Jeezy. Jeezy's out of town and I don't think you should be here alone. Oh wow. Cute. And I thought, Okay, this is a six year old little boy who is deeply thinking and thinking about what's going on, not just about himself, but he has now gone beyond himself. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Boy, that's, that's, and, and two, boy, just, just that, the reassurance it gives you, but also the, the, that gentle reassurance that, man, these kids are great. These kids are doing fine because it's, sometimes it's easy to be generational and, yeah, those younger kids, they're just so messed up. But you have little moments like that, and you realize really how how good we all have it. Right, right. I mean, it's really to be in the moment and realize what you're doing right now. It's to be – it's a little saying that, that we have, which is be where you are. So, you know, you're in the car. You're driving them from place to place because that, as a grandparent, is a big role. Yeah. You can sing together. You can talk together. You can play games together. You can talk about the school day. You can – it doesn't matter what you're doing. It's just that you're being together and you're unplugged. Mm. Um, And, again, I don't think there's anything wrong with technology, but I think you have to not use technology as a substitute babysitter. Yeah. But work with it. And and I also think that that's the great thing about grandparenting is that, as I said before, you learn as they learn. I have learned so much more about apps and computers and even coding Yeah. because I've had to. Just as you had to keep up with your, your kids, Yeah. you need to keep up with your, your grandkids. But there is your, there's a certain joy that you that as a grandparent you have that you can't even explain to somebody until they become a grandparent. Hmm. So true. We're speaking with Leslie Zinberg, who is the uh, is an author and also uh, has been married for 48 years with two children, two grandchildren, and is currently co-writing a book on mindful grandparenting. Also, she has co-written two other books, The Pink and Blue Baby Pages and The Pink and Blue Toddler and Preschooler Pages. She's walking us through some of her insights about being a a better grandparent. What – I always worry too about my – I, I want to love and be with my grandkids as much as I can. I also want my my children to be able to – to make sure that they're, I'm not stealing their role, I'm not overstepping my boundaries. How do we walk that fine line? Yeah, well, that's that's a that's a funny line. I mean, it's a little bit like being a mother-in-law. Yeah. You know, they tell you as a mother-in-law to, you know, to open your pocketbook and close your mouth. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and I think as um, a grandparent, you have to be careful. You know, it's one thing when they're in your under under your guise and, and you're in your home and you have them, they're gonna have to abide by your rules. Yeah. I mean sometimes your rules are different than the parents' rules. Um 
But, and you also have to appreciate what the parents want or what they don't want. So I, I think, for example, I will give you our grandkids that have to eat gluten-free. And that is a rule that our, their parents have, and it's for their benefit. Mm-hmm. And I've had to learn what is gluten-free and what's not. Hmm. And I have to honor that because that's important to their parents. You know, I think you have to honor what their parents want or what they don't want. Sometimes I don't always agree with how their parents want them to do something. Yeah. And you know what? It's not up to me. I'm not the parent. So if I'm asked my opinion, yes. But many times I do not offer my opinion unless, you know, if it's, if it's something in a dangerous situation yeah, or something that is frightening to you or something that you're overly concerned about, overly, overly, overly concerned about, then I think you have to open your mouth. But otherwise, I think you have to really honor what the parents want because they're not going to give you their, grand, their, their kids right. or trust you with their kids if you are not going to honor what's important to them. Boy, and there's that role, right, where you're, you know, we're we're used to maybe telling our kids how it should be, but once mm-hmm. you have grandkids, um they they have your children now have this special role of being a parent that you don't want to step on those toes or you might impede. Exactly. I mean, and that is what our grandparentslink.com, our website, we we explain, we write about different things. I mean, last uh, Sunday we talked about, uh, we had an article about how divorce affects the family and tips on that. We talk about ways, we talk about the difficulty. I mean, we had one article on um, mother-in-law and daughter-in-law hmm. and that relationship. Yeah. And, and, and at the same time, we talk about, we give you ways to be creative with your grandkids, but we also try and talk about the difference of the approach from a parent and a grandparent. Hmm. We, did, we had one funny little article about a grandfather who talked about the fact that a drone delivered a pizza to, their back, to, their, to the backyard, and he was, you know, he couldn't believe it because this is something that he would never have done. Right. Um, and it was a whole new world for him. And, you know, that's what we try and talk about with on GrandparentsLink.com is about your role. Number one, take, taking care of your own self, because if you don't take care of your own self and you're not relevant, then you're not good to anybody. Yeah. So I think that, you know, with, with all of this, the biggest thing is, yes, honor what your, your kids want. And then if there's something special you want to do with them, it's always so easy to ask, may I do this? Is this okay with you? Rather than just grabbing and taking. And doing it. You also um, talk about how important it is to take vacations with your grandchildren. Why, why is that? Well, you know, whenever you go away... And I mean, sometimes it's wonderful if you can go away with the grandparents and the grandkids first so that you understand how everybody operates together. I think that's really important. Whenever you go away, I don't know about about you, but there's something that happens when you step out of your 
ordinary environment. You take a step back. Yeah. You breathe a little deeper. You reflect. You spend more quality time. And that happens if you're with your grandkids. Even if, you know, let's say just going away overnight. Yeah. It's a, t- it's a bonding experience. And that's what the biggest thing is, is to make the grandkids and the grandparents bond together and feel secure. That's great. And have some time to, to just to learn anew and to, I mean, it's it's not like there's just something that happens when you get in the routine as a grandparent. But when you're, you are vacationing and you can get out of routine, some pretty interesting things can happen that I think are very additive and wonderful. Right. Um, Leslie, all oh, possibilities are open. Oh, yeah. Yes. What, what would you say is the one thing that we can all do today um, as a grandparent – that just this one thing would make the biggest difference to our grandchildren and to our own lives? Uh, Probably the one thing I would say is just to be present, to be in the moment, not anyplace else. Just realize what you've got right there in front of you. Yeah. And, and, And enjoy that moment. Not be worried about the next thing you're going to be doing. What's next? Yeah. What am I, where am I going to go from here? No, no. Enjoy just the moments together. It's good stuff. Leslie Zinberg's her name. Go check out the website, grandparentslink.com. It's a great blog uh, that will walk you through some of those articles she was talking about and help us all to be more present with those that we love, those that are around us. There really is no greater calling, I think, than um, being a grandparent. And that's somebody that's been a parent and a spouse. And I mean, it really is this such a unique relationship where they already have the kids have their parents. They just now have a grandparent, a parent that uh, can relate to them and connect to them in such a deep way, such a profound way. We will continue the journey more straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. We, uh, with only one life to live, right, sometimes we get caught up with the idea that every moment of our life has to be the best moment possible. Licensed clinical social worker Diane Barth uh, suggests that uh, it doesn't have to be that way, that we, we maybe need to let go of the idea of being the best and just be okay with being good enough. Uh, we wanted to revisit one of her interviews, and in that interview, I started the interview by asking her or by saying, we want the best, but the best job is the one best thing for you, right? And that's, that's not always uh, necessary. Oh, absolutely. It's a really important point. And, and put it on the other end of the spectrum also. I see it with, um, co- you know, recent college grads yeah. who are looking for their first job, and they feel that it has to be the best job and it has to be the right job. And, w- oh. you know, one of the problems with that is that your first job out of college is almost never the best job. And it hopefully is not the job you're going to stay in for the rest of your life. But it's a chance to really learn some skills that you don't learn in college and that you probably haven't de- developed or um, new skills that you need to develop. 
And I actually think that's one of the biggest problems with the fantasy of the best is that it interferes with our ability to learn. We mm. think we're supposed to know it all, we're supposed to do it all, we're supposed to have it all already, so we can't learn. Well, and how many kids want to have the cars and the homes that their parents have, and yet, uh, you know, we didn't get there overnight. Right, exactly. And what's so funny about it, too, is many of the parents that now have the cars and the homes, they're not even happy. They don't even right. like what they've got. Yes, yes. And, you know, and they'd give anything. But it's, I guess it's just that comparative mentality, and I, it's, I guess it's just something, I guess, that's so natural to a human being. Well, and I think you put your finger on something super important, which is that the more we are able to appreciate, as you said before, the good, you know, yeah. the more we will stop you know, struggling for something that we either can't have or don't have. Um, I think that this idea that we're supposed to have the best, the best car, the best, the best new car, the best house, the, you know, the best mm-hmm. new dishwasher, whatever it is that we think we're supposed to have or that we feel like is the best thing to have, um, inter- you know, it, as you say, it just stops us from enjoying what we do have. Is there, it seems like one place we, we really might want to do our best is just in our own personal um, delivery of of um, our skills or our talents, shouldn't we try to do our best job? You know, I, I, I that's one of the things I write about. That I think that that's a really complex question because, of course, we want to strive to do the best we can do. But um, I, it, my first um, uh, supervisor when I graduated from social work school was a really interesting guy who used to say that, you know, yes, you want to do absolutely as well as you can do, but what you need to know is that, you know, one day you've got more energy or more, or somehow things are just clicking. Yeah. And that day your best is going to be better than another day when you've got a little less energy or you're hungry or you're tired or you had a fight with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And... What he said over and over again, because as you may have figured out, I was and struggled with my whole life being a perfectionist. Yeah. Um, So over and over again, he would say to me, you know, you're not going to ever be perfect. You're going to make mistakes. I mean, he actually is the one who taught me that you learn from mistakes. You really learn from mistakes. But that your, your striving to be your best needs to be with a recognition that today's best is not the same as another day's best. That's true. I guess that's it. Huh? It's, it's based on the conditions, the needs, the abilities, the timing. Your, your best is going to change. Exactly. Exactly. And, 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 yeah, you, you really don't, but we do as humans, you probably ought to find a way to not expect to do more than you can really do. Yeah. But we're yep. horrible critics, aren't we, of ourselves? We are. We are. We're the worst critics. Absolutely. Mm. We need to stop that. What comes <laughs> after best? I mean, what's so funny about it is, so you finally, and you see this a lot, like on Pinterest or on certain sites where somebody has now made the perfect meal. Right. And it's beautifully decorated right. and and it's all laid out. So once and you've delivered the perfect, yeah, yeah, and you got your picture, but then at my house it would be the boys would sit down and they'd all be like, "Ew, <laughs> ew, what is that?" Right. And so after we've attained best, then what? Yep. 
It's, yep. It just seems like we're setting ourselves up to really be kicked in the chin again. Yep. Because <laughs> it's it, tomorrow's another day. Yep, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, which is why we're chasing a dream, aren't we? Yes. But it's a, it's, yes, and it's a problematic dream. I, I actually, I, um, I come from a family who, and my, and my husband and my son are big sports fans. Yeah. And I actually think that there's a great lesson. I mean, I know there are all sorts of problems with all kinds of athletics, but there is a great lesson to be learned from professional and, and even college athletes in that they play as well as they can play. And they know that tomorrow is going to be another day. Uh-huh. Tomorrow they're going to play another game. It will be different. They may have an injury. They may be better. Um, but they don't stop because today was a perfect game. Right. Oh, that's powerful. Yeah. yeah. It's, and, it's, yeah, we just do it again tomorrow and we kind of reset. I think that's I think that is just a great paradigm about it. And and tomorrow, we, you know, tomorrow we could just get schooled. And and yet, you know, today's today. As we exactly. wrap up, um, Diane, what what would you say is the one thing we just need to keep in mind to make sure that we're that good is good and gr- it's good enough? I, I think maybe that's the that's it. I I do think that the the idea you said it earlier, and I think this is really probably the most important thing that a lot of times when we're striving for what we think of as the best, we're looking for something from other people. We're looking for some kind of approval, Mm. some kind of validation, and that's fine. I think as human beings, we all need that. But that's not about the best. It's about what we're looking for, what we need, and we will go ahead and need that again another time. Yeah. Oh, that's it. If we can enjoy what we've got, if we can get some validation for what we've got, great. That, again, was Diane Barth uh, talking about the five ways that good enough is better than best. She is a psychotherapist and psychoanalyst in private practice in New York City. And again, we're doing what we can to just keep uh, bringing you the information you need to make it through this crazy thing called life. You're good enough. You're doing a great job. And good enough is many times all we need to be. Uh, This is The Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. And welcome to the Coach's Corner. Uh, in this uh, segment, we like to give you some, some real-life coaching, some ideas, some tools. We just had a wonderful study presented to us by Andrew Steptoe about uh, as we're aging our happiness levels, right? And so as part of that, I wanted to talk a little bit more about um, retirement. A lot of couples end up retiring and it's, you know, it should be a great, a wonderful, blessed event because now all of a sudden you've got nothing but time to just you and your honey to just live together and be happy. The reality is many people haven't even talked to their spouse for years. And so now we're supposed to make this work. And one person may have been the kind of stay-at-home person, and the other was out in the workforce, and now you're going to come home and inject yourself into their life at home. So four conversations that we need to worry about as we are uh, thinking about retirement. And so if you're an empty nester, it's an interesting statistic about your your divorce rate at empty nesting stage. Apparently, the divorce rate goes up about 16% when you and your honey are left alone. 
with no more kids in uh, in the uh, in the nest. Is that crazy? 16 percent increase simply because now we've got to work at it, as Andrew was saying earlier. The hard thing about a relationship is they demand work, and many of us haven't been doing the work. And so here's four conversations that if you're thinking of retiring, I would sit down and I would have each of these conversations. Don't think you're going to retire, then have the conversation. I'd first have the conversation. The first conversation is what I call the resources conversation. That is about how you are going to live on a fixed wage. With one or both of you now retiring, it only makes sense that you're not going to be able to live at the same financial level that you were before. In this conversation, you should discuss the financial realities of your world. You should evaluate a bunch of different things, your health care benefits, where they're going to come from, how they're going to change, your Medicare, your Medicaid, Social Security, rainy day funds, insurance costs, your cost of living. Is it time to, sh- to get a smaller home? Are we going to stay in the home? Is the home paid off? What are going to be the future changes that need to be made in the home? Are we going to uh, need to put a new roof on the home? What's going on? But start discussing this. I'd get very clear about what your actual inflow of money will look like, and I would do that before you walk away from another company. You know what? You'd, You'd think like, well, no, duh, Matt. But that doesn't always happen. Do you know the inflow of what your money's gonna look like? What will your outgo look like? Are you going to have a rainy day fund to take care of that house? Is it time to get the house on the market? Before we need to be making some of these major changes um, and, and the major you know breakdowns of certain uh, equipment in the home, what does our budget need to be in order to balance the inflow and the outgo? You got to figure that out. Part of the uh, resources conversation is what are the needs and the wants that we both have? Does one of us really want to travel a lot? You know, travel may cost. Do we have a budget for that? Are we going to buy a motorhome and become members of the Good Sam Club? <laughs> and travel all over the country, is that going to be an expense we need to pay attention to? What are some extra activities that are going to come up now that we have more time? Should we just continue working part-time? You know, information, very basic conversation. Think about it. Have you had the conversation? By the way, that's a great conversation to have whether you're retiring or not, by the way. Every one of these are. Um, Another second conversation I'd be focusing on after you've had the resources conversation, have the time conversation. You know, many times one of the biggest surprises is how much time you are actually going to be spending with each other. And a lot of people, when you first fell in love, that was great. Oh, my word. It's so exciting because we have nothing but time together. But you've kind of grown your own identity. You've grown your own hobbies. You've grown your own needs. You need to go figure out. How much each other is going to need? How much space will your partner need every day? You got to figure out what your time is versus their time versus our time. I would not retire and assume that we're just going to be together. I, I promise you, I've seen many a couple once they're together, it, it goes south because now we now what? Now you're going to look at what I'm doing and you're going to start judging how I spend my morning. You're going to watch those shows all morning. Get out of your chair. When are you going to go work on the yard? You've got nothing but time. So your schedules are going to matter. What time do we go to bed now? You know, what time do we wake up? How much time alone do you need every day? What does a tentative schedule look like? I'd break down your schedule. What are the times that you might call sacred every day, inviolable, that, you know, your partner should not be messing with? There might be certain shows you love. There might be certain lunches you love to go have that your partner is not to mess with. 
So the time conversation. Another conversation I love is the distribution of work conversation. This, by the way, is one that you should have with your spouse today, regardless of whether you're retiring or not. We tend to not serve equally in the home. The research shows that while we are dating, women do a little bit more work than the men do. If they're, if they're cohabitating, for example, women do a little bit more work than the men do in the home. The interesting, sad research is once they marry, men do significantly less home work in the home than the woman does. Married people do not distribute the work evenly, especially if one partner works outside of the home. So you need to have a conversation. Are we going to how are we going to distribute the work every day? You got to have clarity on this one because a lack of clarity is going to cause nothing more than pain. So how are we going to distribute the chores? We're going to discuss who's going to do what, who's inside the home, what are we going to do inside the home? Are we both going to work outside of the home? What happens with the automobiles, the family, the grandkids? You know, who's going to make dinner every night? Who cleans up the dinner? I would very specifically go through each part of this. And if we like doing it together, you know, you know, multiple hands make lighter work, right? So here's some questions you could ask. Who's responsible for what chores around the home? Who makes the dinner? Who cleans up? How many times should we eat out versus eating in? What is one activity that uh, you both have been doing for years that you want to quit? Talk about it. Who puts together the family parties? Whose responsibility should that be? Who sends out the birthday cards? Who pays the bills? Who does the grocery shopping? All different ideas about how we're going to distribute the work. So, so far, look at that. We've talked about how we're going to have our resources. Do we have enough? What will it look like? The time conversation, the distribution of work conversation, and last and certainly not least, probably the most important conversation you can have if you're about to retire. And Andrew Steptoe brought it up. It's the legacy conversation. The legacy conversation for me, critical. Okay, because this is going to now shore up that you're going to say, great, let's say we each have 15 to 20 more years in us as we're retiring. What do we want our legacy to be as a couple, as an individual as well? What are your goals? What are your dreams? What is your new purpose? It's an exciting stage. Where do you want to invest this time? What do you want people to say at your funeral? What do you want that legacy to be? This is where we can really tie it up. This is where our passion should come out, as Andrew Steptoe was talking about. Um, this is where we start discussing what do we want our children to say about us, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. You've got the time now. Now we need to maybe strengthen some relationships. We need to start you know, working on ourselves emotionally and spiritually and mentally, financially, physically. All of these are, are resources we can be using But what motivates you? That's a great question at this stage. Share it. What do you want people to say about you at your funeral? Talk about it. What do you consider your most important responsibilities and relationships at this stage? Boy, what happens if one of your kids has a real blow up with their spouse or passes away, heaven forbid, and you get to raise the grandchildren? Is that your legacy? I'd throw these crazy questions in there because if you talk to people long enough, that's what all these couples are going through. Grandparents are picking up more today than they ever have. What is the purpose of your life? If I put a microphone in front of you and just said, hey, what is the purpose of your life? What would you say? What would your spouse say? Do you think you'd be on the same page? Because if we don't know the answer to that question, what are we doing? 
How do I know how to manage every one of my days if I don't know what the purpose of my life is? What is the lesson, one or two, each, maybe one of each of you, that you want to teach to the rest of the world? What do your grandkids need to know that only you could teach as a grandparent? And what lessons do you still need to learn? Basic questions about your legacy. By the way, these are just conversations, right? But my belief is it's a conversation that changes the game. That's why we do this show, because we want to change the conversations. So as we work on our resources, as we work on our time conversations, our distribution of work in the, in the marriage, and our legacy, every one of these conversations makes us stronger. And please listen to what your partner is saying. We've got to figure out what they want because one of the rules is uh, mutual benefit has to be there. We both have to be benefiting if we want a long-term relationship, right? So if this is about you controlling the resources and not letting your partner have any access to money, you're going to have problems. Or if the time, if you keep encroaching on their time or if you're not sharing the workload evenly, you're going to have issues, And we don't want issues because it's not going to make us happy. And according to our earlier research, we need to be happy in order to have longevity. Folks, that's the Coach's Corner. I highly challenge you, suggest that you get out there, have the conversation. And you know what? You don't need to wait for retirement. Legacy, distribution, time, resources. Four conversations, one relationship. That's the Coach's Corner. Thanks for joining us, my friends. We're going to take a break. You're listening to us on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. There, there really are a lot of things I, I think that we could be doing to influence our children to be maybe more tolerant, more open, uh, less judgmental. We, we have a lot of issues that um, that are out there. It doesn't mean that we need to, you know, in, you know, motivate them to go be a great, you know, politician or get engaged in every movement and opportunity out there. But kids need support. And so one of the things that I would recommend, I guess, to all of us is to see what we can do while we're talking with our children about what's going on in the world to see if we can't teach our children to be a little more tolerant and a, and a lot more of, uh, of peacemakers, not where you just have to stick your head in the sand and, 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 you know, accept peace, but promote peace find other ways to be more inclusive. So some tools that uh, I would suggest that we all kind of look at to help our kids. Uh, number one, broaden our pool of understanding. A lot of us, we talked about it in the first hour, just the simple power of our language and having, um, because I'm bilingual and under, and, and fluent in Spanish, it, it changes your brain. It changes how I relate to people from other cultures simply because I appreciate deeply um, the Spanish language and and that culture. It doesn't mean I understand it. It doesn't mean I get it. It doesn't mean I am uh, would just automatically be brought into the culture. But it does mean because I've studied it and lived abroad, I've been able to to have a different point of view. 
And there are a lot of different points of view out there. Uh, Our earlier guest was talking about the fact that if we just um, could make sure that we in Israel, that Hebrew and Arabic were both um, languages that were being taught, wouldn't that in and of itself improve our ability to understand each other and communicate to find real solutions? So broaden our pool of understanding. Give your children more opportunities. Seek out more opportunities of of diversity in every in every single way: cultural uh, diversity, religious diversity, um, ethnic diversity. Gather data from other people. Give your child the opportunity to experience children with with other special needs or um, other issues so that they can broaden their horizon. There is a reason this younger generation is much more open-minded than even the generation before it, and some of that is simply um, they're experiencing it more. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Another idea that might help us be more tolerant and raise more tolerant kids is let's all avoid being overly simplistic, sensational, or sensitive. A lot of us oversimplify everything. We make it good or bad, right or wrong, black or white, up or down, guns or no. And the reality is, as we've talked about on the show so many times, it's much more complicated than just black or white. Also, let's be careful that we don't sensationalize everything. Everything that glitters is not gold, folks. And we probably need to not only just teach our kids that, but make sure that we're not paying, um, we're not, we're not getting too sucked in to all the sensational headlines and the, uh, you know, the latest, most sensational thing of the day. Watch out for that. Another goal is is make sure that just because you're sensitive to an issue doesn't mean um, I have to be sensitive to it. We can be too sensitive to certain things, and um, sometimes that, I think, creates an, an experience where none of us uh, can feel safe doing anything anymore because everybody's sensitive to something. I can worry about your sensitivities. I can also make sure that I don't become so sensitive that I'm incapable of seeing the world from another frame of view. Uh, avoid the online pile-on is the thing I try to teach my kids. If if they see stuff going on on social media, don't jump in. Don't just pile on. Don't just be another voice against. First think it through. Understand your position and make a really effective case for your position. Uh, I had somebody talking the other day that I, I heard them talking about the fact that um, their wife does kind of get involved in a lot of social media you know, issues where she's sensitive to certain things. But what she does is she goes slowly about um, writing her position. And she writes it in such a way that it actually is additive to the conversation. It's not a pile-on. It's additive. And um, she makes a case with data and support, and it actually elevates the conversation. So if you want to be involved in the social media, I teach my kids, then be involved, but be additive. Be bringing something to the equation. Don't just pile on. Don't just jump in. Don't just spew negative stereotypes or prejudice. Jump in and actually bring some light to the discussion. Bring something new that others wouldn't think about, and um, that way your conversation and your piece of the conversation is is helpful. Another powerful thing I think that helps in tolerance is um, let our values and our principles actually appear in our talk. 
So if you want your children to be tolerant, then you've got to be talking about tolerance. And you've got to be talking about your principles, whether it's fairness, whether it's decency, respect. But if you believe in those things, if you believe in loving your neighbors, then let's make it be more than just a concept. Let's make it become part of our dialogue and description. I can't tell you how many times with uh, people, as I'm as I'm working with couples, for example, that have conflict, they they're how they manage the conflict is in no way tied to their values, to the principles that they espouse. Over and over, they people come in and tell me how you know they were married in a church, they were married in a temple, they were married in a synagogue, and yet their church, their synagogue, and their temple never seem to be appear when they're actually in their conflict. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. If we want people to believe what we say, then let's see if we couldn't integrate more of our values into and our principles into how we talk. So it, it's going to be hard for your kids to know what to stand for if they don't know what the values are and the principles are. So talk more about it. And that work that by uh, Dr. Madeline Sherrick in her book, um, Superheroes Club, it's it's about talking about your principles and sharing your principles and then telling your kids, this is what we believe in. This is why we do what we do. Um, and what's powerful about this is once you've laid down those principles, then every single issue that comes up, whether it's shootings in Florida or immigration issues or um, – you know, the latest political discovery or why mom or dad's a Republican or a Democrat, each one of those conversations could come down to our principles, not our positions on any of those issues. There's got to be principles at play here. And how powerful would it be to hand down to your children the idea that principles are alive in our family, guys? Principles govern how we react to each other, how we interact with each other. And uh, then all of a sudden, you've you've probably handed down something that will be invaluable and um, hopeful to your kids. Last but not least, if you want to create tolerance with your conversations with your children, build bridges that um, that you can build on. Defer to uh, to go face to face, look eye to eye, and and figure out where can we start to build a bridge on certain issues. You don't need to finalize the bridge, but if you can see a place where we could take two different shores on different sides of a river and start to build a bridge between the two, let's start doing that. If you can see a way that you can actually create a bridge between uh, immigration issues by appreciating immigrants and by supporting security if you find a place where that can happen, start building the bridge there. We need more people to be building bridges, and we also need, I think, each and every one of us to be willing to cross some of those bridges and and be willing to go to both sides and understand both sides of the issue. Many times we just we're staring across the river at each other with a completely different view on the other side of the river, but because we've never walked on the other side of the river, we don't ever understand it. And instead of just running to one side of the river or the other side of the river, we need people that can understand both sides of the issues to communicate what they know. I, I see it all the time 
with uh, LGBT issues where some people don't understand it. And instead of being frustrated or angry that some people don't understand the LGBT issue or others that just do not understand um, the whatever, the Christian view of LGBT issues, um, we, we don't – I don't need the polarization there. What I need is somebody that is a Christian LGBT uh, person that can talk both sides of the issue and help us all start to bridge some of this, understand some of this. That's why there's power when we've had these experiences in our lives with whatever the issue, with whether it's religious freedom issues, whether it's LGBT rights. When we can converge and bring these together, there's power in how we can solve that. And instead of always polarizing everything, there is power if we could actually take the the same issue and not polarize it but bring us into one conversation with each other that's informed. If you've been able to bridge things before, please help the rest of us bridge them now. That's how you create tolerance. Again, let your values do the talking. Avoid the online pile-on. Avoid being overly simplistic, sensational, or sensitive, and broaden your pool of understanding. And if you have built a bridge, if you understand where there are bridges that can be built between differing opinions, will you please start building those bridges? It's just another thing that we all need as humans here on this earth. Powerful stuff, folks. Uh, Tolerance. It's really what life is about, I think, is understanding that we are all in this same journey together and we're all just trying to get through it with, uh, with more love, hopefully. We'll continue the journey more straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. You know, in a world of changing values and mixed opinions, we often forget some of the most basic and fundamental parts of our culture, the manners, right? We all need manners. Sometimes it's hard to know what the polite and proper thing to do is anymore, but national etiquette expert Cynthia Grosso says your manners and etiquette are not just actions. They are an attitude that is closely related to your self-confidence, your position in business and personal life as well as your ability to build successful relationships, teams, and organizations. She joins us today from South Carolina to bring us back to a time when things were a little simpler and to remind us what our grandmothers once taught us. Cynthia, thanks for being with us. Hi. Good morning. Great to have you on the show. And um, when I when I think of manners, I mean, you do. You think of grandma telling you to get your elbows off the table and stand up straight. Are, are we losing... Are we losing manners? Are they are they are they too subjective now that we don't have a standard? Um, you know, it's interesting because I think that a lot of people think that it is about the rules, and um, I have a little saying that says "rules without reason result mm. in rebellion." And so, what we found oftentimes nowadays is that we understand what we're supposed to do, but we often don't explain the why as to why we're doing it. And, um, you know, if it's just something you have to do without understanding why you're doing it, it tends to be uh, rebelled against or just not done or not understood. Oh, it's so true. And so they, yeah, they really haven't, the, the thoughts really haven't changed. It's never really been about the rules. It's always really been about confidence, understanding that the definition of confidence is faith or belief that you are acting in a right, comma, 
proper and effective manner. And if we really peel the onion back on that, what we find is that the right, comma, comma, proper and effective manner is really based, is rooted really and truly in manners, etiquette, and protocol, knowing what to do, and that's manners, knowing how to do it, that's etiquette, and knowing when to do it, that's protocol. So it's really been about the confidence. Um, Their manners and confidence are directly related because if we look at, you know, well, who determines what the right, proper, and effective manner is, again, it's rooted there. So we start to understand that it's a lot bigger than just what goes around your kitchen table or get your elbows off the table. Mm -hmm. You know, I teach people when you, or, you know, talk to people and let them know that when you teach your child to write a thank you note, you're not teaching the action of writing the note. You're teaching the attitude of gratitude. You're teaching not what to to do, but how to be. And that's much bigger. Mm, Or when you teach them to hold a, yeah, when you hold a, a spoon correctly, a soup spoon, it's not the action of holding the spoon. It's the attitude of self-respect. It's it's not about what you're doing. It's it's who you are and how to be. So it's a lot bigger than people think. And and it's true. I think sometimes um, parents don't always equate manners and confidence, but they're directly related. So it's it's so important. And if you can, I guess I guess the neat thing is if you can if you understand the deeper meaning behind a lot of this. Then you you can you can customize and you can adapt to every situation and the needs of others and what they want and need from you. Give us um, you wrote uh, or th- there's an article about etiquette rules. What are some of the not even rules, but what are some of the etiquette things or um, etiquette? Uh, or I guess it could be any of those manners, protocols. What are some of the things we need to pay attention to today that um, that are important? Right. Um, And pretty much we talk about, um, you know, social etiquette for more for like children. And then, of course, there's business etiquette as well for corporate use. And it's really not about an age. You know, you get to a certain age where it's not necessary anymore. Or so when we talk about it, it's all encompassing. And it really um, it doesn't have any uh, uh, bounds. In other words, it doesn't really matter what your profession is. Uh, We are all in the people business. And so there's so much social science or um, psycholinguistic and, you know, how uh, people relate to things that you say and, and how the manner that you say them. And so it's just, it's so much bigger than, like I say, do it because you have to, or do it because it's our company policy, or do it because that's the way we do it around here. There's so much of the social science that's also very interesting with it. So when you when you ask that question, it's it's all encompassing because we start as children, and of course we you know grow up, and these same attitudes, quite frankly, not really the behaviors, but the attitudes stay with us. Mm. So if we're taught the attitude of gratitude, you know, that extends over to help us. These are life skills, right, that extend, you know, in every area of our life, no matter what our age and no matter where we work. So um, 
you know, there's there's lots of them, and it's it's the you know you can't have civilization right <laughs> without civility. <laughs> That's the isn't that the rub right there? Be, but, and, and like even just the attitude of gratitude you bring up, because I can I can show gratitude by saying thank you. I can show gratitude by holding a door for you. I can show gratitude by um, sending you a thank you letter. Right, and just the smallest of things, you know, that people. You know, I try to teach the the children in school. Of course, my business is mainly corporate. I live in the corporate world, but I do speak at schools. I have a children's book, so I do author readings, um, or I speak at elementary schools, high schools. Of course, I speak at colleges. But again, I live mainly in the corporate world. I speak all over the the country. Um, but I, you know, it's like when I when I talk to children about you know understanding that holding the door for someone is really not an action; it's an attitude. And when we watch the person who has just let the door slam in the person's face behind them, and we watch them walk through the room, they live their whole life like that. Mm-hmm. You know, they have a marriage like that. They have a, a business like that. And so we understand that really and truly, it's not the action, it's, it's the attitude. And so it's really, and that's really what you're shaping if you're talking about family values. That's really what you're shaping when you're talking with children. And, uh, you know, so it's just, it's so important. But, you know, oftentimes I <laughs> I do do a summer program. And like right now I have a teen program, Teen Confidential, running right now. And, you know, people see me and they know me. They say, I'm sending my kid to you this summer, <laughs> you know, like it's a punishment. <laughs> yeah, we're going to fix him. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and I, I want to say it's not a punishment. It's It's the basis. Really and truly, for their for their confidence in life. Well, and, and that that um, you bring that point up a lot about confidence, because really, we a lot of people don't a lot of these a lot of kids even don't know what to do in a in a situation. They don't know how to approach a teacher. They don't know how to right. give feedback to somebody, and so no wonder they're they're afraid if you don't have the skills. Yeah, absolutely. If you don't have the skills, and you know we. We love technology and and um, we love our phones and but sometimes I say you know an effort to connect us sometimes I feel technology has disconnected us and you know it's it's funny because my millennials that I speak with will say oh well we're connecting with people all over the world and you know and I say you know I love that and and it's great and but while you're sitting there connecting with people all over the world there's somebody sitting right next to you yeah. <laughs> that you're not connecting with that you're not speaking with you know one of the things that i notice um is children today they they i i walk in my neighborhoods in the morning and I, that's my my morning exercise i walk and a lot of times i'll say good morning and the children don't even really uh, they don't look at you they don't speak and i i understand sometimes you know stranger danger and don't talk to strangers but you know, i want to tell parents sometimes that if you will have your child and teach your child to say good morning or to say hello, to uh, address that person, look them in the eye and say good morning as you pass. That's not a conversation. It's mm-hmm. a greeting. Because what I find so much is, it's, you know, you walk by someone and it's not so common courtesy. <laughs> you used to call it common courtesy. Today it's not so common courtesy for someone to say good morning or to say hello. And honestly, they're safer if they do it. Because if they do it, then they, what do they do? They look at the person 
in their eyes. They, you know, can see them rather than not even looking. Mm-hmm. What I find, you can assess. Or, yeah, yeah, you can assess and you can figure out very quickly. You know, am I safe? Am I, you know, do I keep walking? <laughs> Is this where I turn and run? But if you don't look, you can, you know, if they're not looking, they're not speaking. First of all, it's it's not showing the person walking by you value. But it's also a safety. It could be a safety issue. So what I want to say oftentimes is teach them to say, give them a greeting and keep walking. Teach them to say good morning, look them in the eye and smile and keep walking. Do not, you don't have to stop. You don't have a conversation. But I feel like it's almost safer mm. than, you know, than not looking at them at all. Yeah. Not looking up or staying looking at your device or and then the other part of that is the understanding of how we interact with people. And, you know, Dr. John Dewey was a, a famous American philosopher. And Dr. Dewey said the deepest need we have as human beings, uh, I say behind food and shelter, of course, is uh, the need to be important. Mm. And if we acknowledge someone, you know, whether that's a teacher in a school or a friend in the hallway, just smile or, you know, eye contact. And maybe you can't talk in schools. We don't want to disobey any rules that school may have. But an acknowledgement of people, um, you know, then the acknowledgement often comes back. In other words, if you walk by someone and you don't speak, you don't look, uh, what you've just done is you've just taught that person that the next time they see you, they probably won't acknowledge and uh, you. So it kind of devalues who you are. Mm. So the way I teach that to kids is to say, you know, your part of your self-confidence is um, your perception of what you think other people think of you and part of that. And, um, and you know, not all of the definition of self-confidence, of course, but so if that's the case, then you, the more good you get back, um, the better it helps you to feel about yourself, the more bad you get back, you know, then, you know, based on your interaction with people. Yeah. So I get more good to have that little bit of um, confidence. You know, we have to give it to get it. It's kind of like that, you know, you, you give what you get um, kind of thing. Yeah, that mantra um, it's it's that social mirror idea that yeah you keep getting this reflection of what you are, good or bad, and and it, it, you do we then we adopt it as part of our confidence. We're speaking with Cynthia Grasso and she's walking us through um, just etiquette and a wonderful uh, website CharlestonSchoolOfProtocol.com as she teaches us everything from table manners to really getting confident in who you are and how you respond to other human beings. Information matters, folks, and it matters for our self-esteem and our our sense of confidence. We'll take a break, be back, give you more ideas. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone is Cynthia Grasso, and she's talking to us about how to use basic etiquette practices to benefit our personal lives, our professional lives, to increase our confidence. Cynthia Grasso, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. I know it's a sacrifice. And when I I think of um, 
like my my sisters, I don't know why my grandma did this, but my sisters felt my my grandma would wanted my sisters to learn. Um, they went to they went to a charm school, <laughs> an <laughs> etiquette school, and this was in Utah. I mean, I can imagine that in the South was a big deal and and actually very beneficial to my sister. Um, but we but we all laugh about it because like it ended up really only being one sister that went. And uh, we, we think we, – we don't know if it was because she was a favorite or she was just really in need. And so talk about – talk about – but I, it, it does give confidence. I mean I remember her walking around the house. That was in a different era. But you know, with balancing books on her head, learning to sit up straight. I went to a private school where we had to address the teacher and they taught us how to address the teacher when, when we had to make a correction. You know, um, am I correct in thinking that it should be two, not a four? And we would stand up when they would walk in the room. I mean, it's it 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 seems like these crazy little rules back in the day, but a lot of it too. I mean, it it does. I mean, your body posture changes your belief in yourself. A lot of this does. stuff gives you something at least to fall back on instead of just worry. Right. Well, absolutely. Because again, if you know the the right thing to do, then you can be competent in that. You know, it it doesn't mean that you know somebody else will know, but it doesn't mean that everything will go your way. It just means that you, whatever happens, that you have the confidence that you handled it correctly or that you interacted correctly, and um, and there's a confidence in that. And uh, and so yeah and and earlier too I was saying that you know uh, and I want to make sure I say that you know sometimes you can give good I was trying to say that if you more good you can get back and the way we get more good is to give it mm. doesn't always necessarily mean that if you're nice somebody will be nice back right. to you I'm, I wish that was true yeah. but it's not always true but I try to tell them that if you're not you know if you give an attitude then chances are that. Um, the you'll get an attitude back, you know, and and if, more chances than than not, and and in that attitude, what you've just taught them is it's okay for them to speak to you that way, or in that moment when you give it and you get it back, you've just taught somebody else. Because people say, oh, you teaching people how to interact with other people or how to treat other people, and I always want to say, no, no, no. What I'm really teaching is how to treat yourself, because every day you teach people how to treat you. Mm. And so it's not a hundred percent guarantee, of course not. Yeah. But you have a lot better chance. <laughs> yeah, it increases the odds, doesn't it? <laughs> if we're going just for the odds game, it's 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 good get, for that. Nice. That's right. It gets nice back. And the other thing I want to tell you about what you were saying about your sister having to go to charm school. You know, it's funny because when I do a program, oftentimes the parents will tell me. You know, well, my child really doesn't really want to go or we're making them do this. And so sometimes kids come into the program, you know, not so happy or I don't want to say kicking and screaming, but cool. Right. And by the end of the week, especially our camp that we've had in the summertime that people from all over the world come, we've had people from many countries come. Um, and, and But, you know, at the end of the week, they're like unbelievable. You know, the kids have had such a good time. They've learned so much. They've made good friends. It wasn't at all what they thought. Yeah. Nobody <laughs> so, died. You know, hey, it's good. <laughs> but, and so, um, but it's funny because I hear that a lot. And yeah. so I get it. You know, I really do understand that that's not probably their big thing on their list, you know, but surprisingly, just like anything else, you know, oftentimes what we think is 
um, in fact, not not really true. In other words, it's not as horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> and actually pretty fun. And um, it's funny because I was at a, um, a, a meeting here in Charleston, and um, it was a big meeting. And actually, it was a Charleston prayer breakfast, quite honestly. And um, it's a big citywide thing that they do once a year and anyways. But I ran into two of my former students, of course, were now grown. And they came up and they said, Miss Grosso. And I said, yes. And they told me their names. And I was like, oh, my goodness. And, you know, she, he said to a sister and a brother, and uh, they both went at the same time. And he said, you know, we have often talked about how we really didn't want to go to camp that year, but how it was one of the best things we've ever done. Mm. And so that some of the stuff that you taught us, we still use today. And these, you know, I'm actually not exactly sure how old they were because I don't remember exactly the year they came through, but I know they're at least in college. Yeah. And it it works. It sticks. It does. It sticks. (laughs) Well, Cindy, we appreciate you uh, for doing it and keeping and keep up the good work there. Go, everybody go check out charlestonschoolofprotocol.com, and you can get more information about her uh, professional savvy series and an online learning program for professional table manners. Again, it'll help you at work. It'll help you in the family and confidence and something you can use the rest of your life. Welcome back, friends. You know, welcome. Uh, life is full of pressure. Have you noticed it? Just enough to stress you out and make life kind of difficult. Um, but the reality is, and, and we, we hear more and more, that people are feeling more stress, more anxiety, more people are being diagnosed with anxiety. And yet, how can that be, right? I mean, is life just that much more stressful or are we just losing our grip? Are we losing our ability to find the peace amidst all of the pressure? So I, I actually um, – I've had a really weird experience with this. So I have a lot of clients. I teach um, marriage skills, conflict resolution skills, teach them how to communicate and, and strengthen their relationship. But I found a lot of couples, what they're struggling with is one member of the relationship or the or the partnership – one of them may have more anxiety than the other, and that anxiety plays out in really strange ways in the marriage. They, they, you may have a partner that worries about a lot of stuff. You may have a partner that might be more introverted and doesn't want to go to every party that uh, you want to go to, or they stress about it, and they, they would rather stay home and read a book and you know, watch Netflix and hang out, and you might be thinking, what is your deal it's this isn't fun. This isn't a, the way to live. We can't always worry about everything. So how do we manage the anxiety if we're going through it? Um, as as and, and I created a workshop for it and um, put it on my website, uh, uh, matttownsend.com. But the workshop is really about how we figure out how to get through it. So let's talk a little bit about what anxiety is and what you can do about it. Anxiety, by the way, is an emotion characterized by feelings of tension, worried thoughts, physical changes like increased blood pressure. Everyone, by the way, should experience anxiety, right? If I drop a cobra in your cubicle, you should experience some stress, right? 
Very natural thing. You should have the worries. The difference with anxiety disorders or people that have an anxiety disorder is their anxiety is, is kind of – it's constant. It's permanent. About 18 percent of the U.S. population, 25 percent of adolescents ages 13 to 18, 18 percent of adults suffer uh, and experience anxiety above and beyond, just a natural state of stress. And so it, it's a big deal. Now, one thing to remember, though, is not all stress is bad. And that's one of the downsides to trying to deal with anxiety is a lot of us would just rather go medicate our stress and take drugs, take anything we can to to not have to engage um, or just avoid life. But the problem with it is a lot of your greatest growth in life is going to take place when there's a little stress on board. So you got to know that there's this one type of stress called eustress, E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S, which is a very helpful type of stress. 77% of Americans regularly experience physical symptoms caused by stress. 73% of Americans regularly experience psychological symptoms caused by stress. And 76% of Americans cited that money and work as the leading causes of their stress. Now, interestingly, um, stress is a healthy type of stress. So the way this works is stress would be the fact that you love your job and you, you know, you you have to pick up your game. You have to work really hard. You focus on going and doing that really big presentation. And sure, you're a little stressed out on the way there. You're stressed out. But then you hit a home run and life is great. That stress is called you stress. That is the healthy stress. And if you have enough of it in your life, you feel energized. You feel focused, right? You feel excited about life. You really feel like your work is is produces results. That's the good stress. If you have too much of that going on in life, that's called distress. You start to get anxious, fatigue, exhaustion, breakdown. So at in some point in our lives, we have to know when we're moving from the good stress to the unhealthy stress. So think about it like think about it like physical exercise. Nobody necessarily loves to feel the stress of running on a treadmill. But once you've but once you've kind of gotten in shape and you can run on a treadmill and maybe put in 30 or 40 minutes on a treadmill, that is a good amount of stress that helps keep you healthier. If you don't ever want to have that experience of feeling the stress of a treadmill, then you could fall into kind of an unhealthy state where you're not challenged, you can't do things, you can't even live at an optimal level, or you could actually spend too much time on the treadmill and it becomes distressful and makes you less healthy. So life is about balance, right? So how do we do that? How do we get into life to a point that we, we can balance this anxiety and this stress? So think about your own existence. Do you, do you look forward to your work? Do you look forward to your work day? Do you dread it? Do you have this feeling of uh, just doom and gloom? There's no one way to... Um, to kind of assume that uh, you're just – you have an anxiety disorder unless you start looking at how your day plays out. Do you, do you have dread? Do you have fear? Do you always wonder what's going to happen tomorrow? Do you wonder what – do you worry about things that you said yesterday and uh, maybe obsess about it and think about it many times today? Oh, I shouldn't have said that. Why did I say that? If you can't let go of yesterday – and you're always worried about tomorrow, you're probably going to feel more and more stress. 
And stress is normal, right? Think about it. If you naturally spend a lot of time in tomorrow, you should feel stressed because the problem with tomorrow is you can't live tomorrow. So you can call it whatever you want to call it. You can call it anxiety if you want. You can call it stress. I don't call it anxiety usually. I call it worry. I don't call it fear. I don't call it concern. These are all words you may have. Apprehension, unease, agitation, angst, tension. You might have the, the dem dare jitters. But the reality is you probably have worry. And how do you handle worry? Uh, let me give you just a few of my favorite little tricks about worry, okay? And I promise they work. Number one way on earth to manage your worry, and we've talked about it on the show quite a bit, is the fact that um, you got to breathe. When people are stressed, your breathing changes. Think about it. If all of a sudden you heard somebody, you're walking down an, eye, an alley in downtown New York and somebody you know, starts a chainsaw behind you, <laughs> your body is going to kick into some natural fight-or-flight mode. When that fight-or-flight mode is on, your, bre- your body is going to start breathing differently, probably more shallow breathing, right? Because you got to get enough oxygen going, but you got to get that heart pumping. You're going to breathe shallow. You don't have time to take enormous, big, deep breaths. Your body will tighten up. And as you tighten up and get ready to start running, game on. And that's what happens to a lot of people. If I, if I told you today that you're going to have to be on national television in front of three million people and talk about something, that might stress you out. And what you'll notice happens immediately, your breathing changes. You don't tend to breathe as deeply. You don't tend to uh, get as much oxygen in your system. And when that's going on, you feel stress. The natural byproduct of not breathing enough is stress. If I sat on your chest... It would stress you out, I'm pretty sure. It would stress you out. Have you ever done that? Have you ever had, remember back in the day, your friend would sit on top of you and hold your arms down and all of a sudden you start freaking out and you can't breathe. I can't breathe. You start hyperventilating. That's what happens when worry kicks in. So the number one tool is to learn active breathing techniques. And it's hard to teach. It's really not because it's easier to see, I think, healthy breathing. But all you have to do is go to YouTube and look up active breathing and there are incredible tools online to start learning how to breathe deeply. I learned as a, as a journalist um, and, and an anchor, a television reporter anchor, right before I would go on air, I would always take a deep cleansing breath. I try to fill my lungs up with air. I try to hold it. And then I would breathe it out slowly. And when I did that, amazingly, I got rid of the jitters. The jitters literally just disappeared. And they disappear because once your body's oxygenated, you don't need to feel the worry. Many believe 80% of anxiety issues can be managed just simply by breathing. More effective, healthy breathing. Another tool that is so powerful for you is your brain and where you put your thoughts. So once you start to notice your worry, a lot of us start arguing about the worry. I had a great story with my son once where... Um, he had a little social anxiety, and he didn't want to go to his, this guitar performance class we had signed him up for. He asked to go to this class, just so you know. It wasn't parents forcing him. He wanted to go to it until it was time to go. Then he started giving us a bunch of lip and story like, I don't want to go. These people, I don't even know these people. I'm not going to learn anything. I don't want to go for two days. And what if it's stupid? I, I want to go with my friends. And they, we had a million things that he was bringing up. 
when you start to feel worry, you tend to bring up a lot of nonsense, the things that he doesn't like. Well, what if these people aren't there? A lot of what ifs, a lot of, you know, possible things that might happen. A lot of the teacher's stupid. They don't understand me. I don't want to go to school. This is stupid. Scouts are stupid. Whatever you try to get your kids to do that they don't want to do. Um, In the end, don't take the bait. Don't fight over all of these things that aren't the real issue. This had nothing to do with every excuse my son was giving me for why he didn't want to go to the guitar class. It was his worry. His social worry was kicking in. So what I learned to talk with him about is, son, this is your worry kicking in, isn't it? You're just worried. So how are you going to handle your worry? There's only one question you need to worry about when it comes to your worry. It's how you're going to handle your worry. Don't fight about whether you should do it. You've already committed to do it. We've already paid the money. So I basically told him, we've already paid the money. You are going to this camp this guitar camp for two days. You're going. So the only question we need to figure out is, how are you going to handle your worry? And then we can start worrying about how we handle the worry. And by doing that, I forced my son to deal with his worry instead of making up a bunch of stories that aren't the real issue. Does that make sense? Then I just have to give him a bunch of tools to handle the worry, one of which is breathing. Let's practice our breathing. Another thing we can worry about or practice is our thinking. What are we thinking about? Give me some things that you know that of how this will work for you. I just coached a person on that had to give a really big speech and they were very they were terrified about having to give the speech. And they're worried that they're gonna break into hives, they're worried that their face is gonna go red. I'm like, okay, so great. So let's imagine you get up there and you – I go, have you ever broken into hives before doing a speech? She's like, no. But I've seen somebody break into hives and it was horrible. So you've never seen or noticed you broke into hives? No. So if that's the case, what are the odds you'll break into hives? Well, I don't know, but I don't want to risk it. Let's say you did break into hives. Could you wear clothes that would make it so you didn't – no one could see your neck breaking into hives? Well, yeah, I've got this really nice blouse that could cover. Da, da, da. Great. Let's wear that. What else would happen if you started getting worried and your face turned red? What else could you do? And we started talking about solutions for how they could handle it. And amazingly, once you start to address the issues that you can handle, a lot of times your worries kick down, right? One of the rules about talking and dealing with your worry is focus where you have influence and power to influence Don't just focus on what you're concerned about. If you focus on your concerns, your concerns tend to grow. If you focus on where you have influence, your ability to influence it grows. I remember giving a speech once after uh, in a a speaking class in in college and um, saw somebody really having a physical breakdown in the middle of their speech. And then I went and gave my speech. And immediately after my speech, I ran to the restroom and I looked at myself in the mirror. Because I wanted to see if I was experiencing or showing, demonstrating any of the physiological effects of a breakdown. And I got this confirmation that I wasn't. I was a little sweaty, but I wasn't red-faced. I wasn't breaking into hives. I wasn't – my eyes weren't bulging. I wasn't hyperventilating. And once I got that fixed in my brain, I could then know that for me, I don't respond that way. And that – 
gave me more and more power. One of the another powerful way to manage your anxiety is to recognize it. Call it that. Say it out loud. Wow, I'm feeling worried. Because you're you're going to have to see it sometime, right? Once you start to see that you're feeling the worry and and owning the label of it, then you actually can you can do something more about it. Another powerful tool to managing anxiety is simply um, staying present because our inclination is to – and you'll notice a lot of your worry is going to come from your past or your future, worrying about what might happen, worrying about what did happen. The more I can stay in the now and work on what I can work on, it creates some powerful, powerful stuff. Another thing I teach in my uh, worry program and my anxiety program is that you need to build what I call your calmness code. There are certain things that build more calmness, right? And I need to know what my code is. And so over my lifetime, I've been figuring out, I know before I do a big event or a big speech, sleep helps me. I know that I need to be prepared. I need to know my stuff. I need to trust and believe in my abilities. I need to think back to all of my successful experiences. And as I build my own code, I know I need to probably not have caffeine on board. uh, Or sometimes that will create more anxiety for me. I know I need to have some good healthy food in me. I also know before I speak, I can't have just eaten. So I've learned all of these little tricks uh, before I speak. And I now it's interesting is because I speak so much, like two or three times a week, and get paid to speak. It's, um, it changes. It changes your confidence level. It changes who you are. I remember being terrified. Uh, I was the youngest presenter for a, a major training company called Franklin Covey Company. And um, I was this young punk that would go out and try to figure out, you know, I'm going to go speak for this company and I'm, I'm, you know, half the age of a lot of people in the room. And I remember having to just get my position clear. And I, I remember thinking, you know what? I just need to remember that this, none of this is about me. Nobody came here. And I, I used to write this on the, the, the little workbooks I would teach from uh, my, my facilitator manual. I would write the phrase, Matt, nobody came here to see you. Just deliver the message. Just teach the principles. And I found a lot of peace in that. Nobody was there. Nobody traveled to go to a public workshop to see Matt Townsend when I was supposed to be teaching the seven habits of highly effective people. Just deliver the principles. And I found that when I lost myself by consciously putting myself in a different reframe, it worked. Amazingly, it works. And that's the cool thing about uh, worry. It, it can be your guide. It can tell you that you need to pay attention. And it doesn't, need to, it doesn't need to own you. And the powerful thing about it is once you start to take your life back and not let the worry or the anxiety dominate, you have now conquered something that is huge. And now you can start to offer your greatest offerings in the world because you've conquered. You've conquered your weakness. Powerful stuff. You can find out more. Just just look up the show, The Matt Townsend Show or matttownsend.com. Tons of material out there, all free, just here to help. 